Hello and welcome back to the Canadian Money Roadmap Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Neufeld. Today we've got a really fun episode for you. This is the first interview podcast of this year. We're already into September. We haven't done too many interviews, so this one's going to be fun. This is with Robin Tobe, and she is an expert on teaching your kids about money. Okay, joining us today is Robin Tobe, author of The Wisest Investment. This book is about teaching your kids to be responsible, independent, and money smart for life. Robin is an accountant turned author and speaker and is an expert at this topic of teaching kids about money. So Robin, thanks so much for joining us on the Canadian Money Roadmap today. My pleasure. So before we started recording here, I was mentioning that in the CFP program, we mostly kind of gear towards folks that are getting closer to retirement, business transitions, things like that. The idea of teaching kids about money doesn't really come up in my traditional training here. And my daughter is only two. And so I haven't really started to think about this too much. So, But I think this is quite timely and you have a lot of value to add for us. But before we get into some of the meat of the book and some of the things that you'd recommend for people, tell us a little bit about your background and what was your motivation for writing the book? Sure. As you mentioned, I am an accountant by training, but I love, I like to say that I'm not your typical accountant because I don't practice anymore. I, I did for a long time, but then I transitioned out and I worked in industry, in real estate, and then on the trading floor at Citibank and in, in derivatives marketing. I also have two kids who are in their 20s now, and I always felt it was important and a priority to teach them about money as they were growing up. And my husband's also an accountant by training. So this wasn't something that we were shying away from or uncomfortable with in our house because it was just kind of a natural topic. And I could see that as my kids were getting older, that it was paying off because they just seemed to understand how to manage money. You know, when they went off to university, they they were comfortable with, you know, managing their own households and budgets. And even to this day, they're both now working they are very, I like to say they're mostly money smart because no one's perfect. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason that I wrote the book was that BPA Canada, which is the governing body of accounts in Canada, they wanted to create a resource to help parents. After the 2008 global financial crisis, they did research which showed that parents were really struggling. A survey found that 78% of parents had tried to teach their kids, but two thirds didn't feel they'd been particularly successful and more than half didn't know what information they needed. So I had just started working in this area, content creation on financial literacy. I was working with the Ontario Securities Commission and I was volunteering for CPA Canada on a totally different matter, which was their initiative for women's leadership. So they they were like, we want to write a, create a book about this for parents. It's going to be our first consumer publication. Would you be willing to write it? And I was like, hmm. I've never thought about writing a book before, but I'm usually, I'm good with numbers. Obviously I'm an accountant, but also with words. Like I've always been strong in both areas. So I was like, okay, I'll write a book. So I did. And the book, the original book was called A Parent's Guide to Raising Money Smart Kids. And they published it. Fast forward 10 years later, my kids are now grown up. The world has changed a lot. It's gone digital. And horribly, we've had this pandemic. Right. So I really felt the book needed to be updated to reflect the digital post-pandemic world. So I updated it. I self-published it. It's now called The Wisest Investment. 
Awesome. I, I saw on the cover there, you've got a little shout out from, from, from a wealthy barber even. Wow. I know. Yeah. David Chilton. Cool? Yeah, pretty David Chilton. Yes. So Dave created this amazing course for nonfiction book creation and marketing. It's oh. called the Chilton method. I mean, okay. he is the foremost expert, I would say on nonfiction book, book marketing in maybe the world. And I took the course before I did the update of the book. And then I, I like took it again and again, like it's a bunch of videos and I just kept watching them. And it was like a blueprint for how to create a really great book, I think. So yeah, we reached out to him and he was willing to provide the testimonial, which was just so, uh, I was just, yeah, it's one of my proudest moments because it really was such a great endorsement to have him call it a treasure chest of great ideas. So oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I've got a copy of the, the wealthy barber returns yeah. behind me on my shelf there. Awesome. I think everyone does right? Yeah. Like <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. It's kicking around barber. somewhere. Yeah. It was just the first personal finance book that was in a novelized format and it really changed the game. Awesome. Well, let's jump into some of the, the content here as far as raising money smart kids. You mentioned, maybe let's put it back on the parents here for a second here. So you mentioned in some of that research that a lot of people feel like they failed in that, in teaching their kids about money. What does failure look like in that in that way? So like yeah. someone tried and like, what does failure look like? Or maybe why do parents struggle with this area? Yeah. So the biggest challenges that parents face are feeling like they lack the time or the knowledge or the opportunities to teach their kids about money. So time, you know, we're just, everyone's so busy and it feels really like just one more thing you have to do. So to deal with that, I tell parents to try to look for teachable moments, opportunities to teach their kids about money that just crop up naturally. So if you're, I mean, I don't know if you guys have taken your little, your little ones to the ATM with you and you've gotten cash out, but once they start talking, they may ask you why money just comes out of a hole in the wall. So that's an opportunity to explain, you know, it's like a piggy bank. If no money goes in, no money can come out. And how does the money go in? Will you have a job? And, you know, all those little things, or if they're with you when you're grocery shopping or anywhere where you're using a debit or credit card, once they get a bit older, you can explain how those things work. So lack of time is for sure one. Lack of knowledge is a really big one. So we're lucky. We're financial professionals. We feel comfortable, confident around money. A lot of Canadians, a lot of people generally don't, and they just, they're embarrassed or ashamed of their finances. In fact, I think FP Canada just did a study which showed that, I think it was, I have to just double check that this is the one I'm thinking of, that many parents feel embarrassed or ashamed thinking they should be doing better at this stage of their lives. So it's just easy not to talk about it when you're so busy with other things, but just because you're not talking about about it, about money, doesn't mean that your kids aren't learning from you in the way you behave and picking up things. So I think people just, you know, they're, they're ashamed. They're afraid they're going to make mistakes in teaching their kids, or they're afraid that they've made so many mistakes and they're not sure if they should share them. And they're afraid they're going to get like uncomfortable questions, you know, like, are we rich or how much money do you make? Or how, you know, do we have a mortgage? So, you know, and parents are just, they shy away from answering those questions. So there's quite a lot of reasons. Like, I guess when I didn't say parents had failed, I guess they, I said they didn't feel they'd been very successful. So that was poor interpretation. Difference. of my. No, no, <laughs> yeah. no, it's not. But I think there's a subtle difference in that maybe they felt the lessons didn't stick 
that they didn't share information that was age appropriate, that they didn't focus on the right things at the right moment. So I think there's a lot of ways that parents can feel like, oh, I tried, but I just didn't do a great job. And I don't, and like, as you say, it's kind of hard, like it's parenting in general. Like, how do you know that you're doing a good job, that you are a good parent, that your kids are going to grow up? Okay. There's no you test know, the, to pass. <laughs> every, yeah. every kid's there's different. There's no test yeah. to pass as a parent. Right. It's so, it's so hard to know how you're doing along the way and sort of look for these signposts and these tells and these milestones. And that's what I've tried to give parents is like a, a bit of a roadmap. So here's what to sort of, here's how to go about it. Here's what kids should know kind of at different ages and stages based on research and speaking to other parents and my own experience. But yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, it's a hard thing. Like parents have to, you know, try to find these teachable moments and also be aware of the kind of role model that they are for their kids. On that note though, Robin, one of the takeaways mm-hmm. that I had, it was, it was early in the book. You mentioned that, you know, you don't have to set aside extra time necessarily. You're going to go to the grocery shop. You're going to go grocery shopping. You know, you mentioned it. You're going to take out cash from the ATM. You're going to go through these day-to-day activities that provide those learning opportunities, which I, I really like that you kind of, you know, can feel overwhelming. But if we simplify yes. it, one of the takeaways I had is it doesn't necessarily have to be hard and you don't have to think of these grand ways to teach your kids these opportunities are going to come up every single day. And that's, so that's one of the things I noticed right away that you mentioned in the book. Oh, I'm glad that resonated with you because yeah, I was trying to tell parents, like you don't have to set aside like money school time. Everyone's got extracurriculars and homework and everything because it will just prop up and your kids are curious. So it's just looking for those opportunities or taking advantage of them. Can we talk about that stages and ages thing that you mentioned before? So, So through the book, there's a number of sections that talk about teaching different things to kids of different ages. So just walk us through how that conversation changes as kids grow up. Yeah. So there's what I call five pillars of money and they are earn, save, spend, share, and invest. Now those five pillars never change, but as your kids get older, the specific topics and examples for each of those five do. So the way I thought about this was I, I broke it down into four different stages. So young kids, five to eight. So a little older than your, your own toddlers. I don't normally recommend starting too much earlier than age five because kids are just a little too young to absorb it. But by all means, if you have a three or four year old who's expressing curiosity, then definitely they're ready to learn a little bit about money. So the pressure's Um, off. I don't have to... Yeah, you have a few years. Yeah, okay, good. So yes, young kids, five to eight, then preteens, nine to 12, teenagers, 13 to 17, and then emerging adults, 18 and older. And again, just rough guidelines. So obviously what you're going to talk to a university or college age or working, you know, teenager, young adult about within the area of earning or spending is going to be very different than what you talk to a preteen about in those areas. So every, you know, I tried to make the information in the book extremely specific and practical for those different ages, but always falling under one of those five pillars. And I mean, you really want to make sure the information that you share is age appropriate, because if it's too high above, they're just going to zone out and tune out. Like financial literacy should be delivered at that stage of life that you're in, where it's relevant and useful to your life, or you're not going to retain it. So 
if it's too, and if it's too like below them, they're also, it's just not going to be practical. So I tried to think about what they would need to know at every age and stage. And also it builds on itself. So ideally you want to start teaching your kids when they're young, and then you can keep building on these five pillars and they have a foundation and, and they just keep getting more sophisticated in terms of what you're talking about. That's awesome. Question about the parents here still. So as you're thinking about those five pillars, you know, maybe someone's listening and feeling like, boy, I don't have this figured out. How do I, how do I teach my kids about it? If I feel like I'm learning too, yeah. you know, do you have any, I guess, thoughts about that? Or, or as a parent, do you have to have this all figured out before you start to, to teach your kids as you go? Absolutely not. You do not have to have it all figured out. I love to say that this is something that you and your kids can learn together. Because that is one of the barriers to parents. They do feel like, like, how can I teach my kids if I'm not even doing it right myself? But A, you can learn together and teaching someone is a really good way to learn something or reinforce concepts. And you don't have to be perfect. You can share mistakes that you've made and learn, you know, every, every mistake is a lesson. So hopefully the book will give you the information that you need, or at least a starting point. So you know what to talk about at different ages and stages. I, you know, it is it is hard for parents that are still struggling with bad habits or, you know, maybe too much debt. A lot of different things have come out of this pandemic, but and, and money stress really can lead to physical and mental health issues. So it's so important. You know, maybe this is the catalyst. Teaching their kids might be the catalyst to get their own financial house in order. So they can lead by example. I mean, I, I hope it is because I think being a good financial role model is so important. And I also, in the book, you probably saw there's like these 11 healthy habits of financial management. So that could be a good place to start. Yeah, there's a measure yeah, of humility awesome. that that one has to have, you know, when, when when teaching your kids about money, I suspect, right? So it's like, well, assuming you don't have it all figured out and you haven't got it all right along the way, those are probably some of the more valuable things to share with your kids, maybe like, like how uh, that's going to be a tough uh, line to walk to say, Hey, the most important thing I can tell you is how badly I messed this up myself. You know? Yeah. Like, I mean, in some ways those, those lessons may be the ones that stick. I mean, a lot of times what we learn the hard way or our failures or our mistakes are the things where we really grow and change. I mean, just, a small example of that would be, I remember when my daughter got her first credit card, even though I'd be teaching her stuff, she somehow missed the first payment deadline. Yeah. Yeah. And she just, I don't know what happened. She just didn't pay attention and she missed it. And when she told me about this, I, you know, it happens to me too, not very often, but occasionally something will just slip through or I'm a, you know, a day late and I always call them and they, you know, explain it's an oversight and they can look at your pattern and then they know that that's true and they will reverse any interest charges. So I just, you know, I share that with her. It's, you know, it's don't feel bad about it. You know, you're still a money smart kid, but you know, we make mistakes. And I think the important thing is to get on the phone, explain that it was a mistake as the first payment and ask them to reverse the charges. Cause if you don't ask, they won't do it. But people don't even know that you can you can do that, that you can get on the phone if you've made a mistake. My assistant recently accidentally made a huge payment. It was supposed to be for her credit card and she paid it to a, like her f- cell phone bill. Oops. Yeah. And that was actually hard to get them to reverse it. But 
they did eventually, like she ended up getting a check and, but you know, those, and I said, you know, I've done that too. It don't feel ashamed about it. Just let's, let's figure out a solution. Yeah. It's, you can be both money smart and money forgetful sometimes. And that's, yes. that's okay. Yeah. Cause there's cognitive overload. In fact, I just heard a podcast about this on the wall street journal and they have a great podcast a money one. And they were saying a lot of people have been like forgetting to pay their bills, like not because they don't think it's important or they they're doing it on purpose, but they just get so overwhelmed. Like you're, you're about to pay your credit card. And then like all of a sudden your kid calls from school or someone FaceTimes you or texts you and you just forget. So, you know, to the extent that you can automate those things and take the self-discipline out of the process, that's probably a good solution for a lot of us. We're very much on the same page with that. Yeah. (laughs) Automate all your good habits. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I have a, I have an episode. One of my earlier episodes is about how I hate budgeting because it's, it's so tough to actually stick to. And so Mm -hmm. I, I like to automate things. My brain doesn't work in a budgeting way. So anyways, that's, uh, that's neither here nor there. That's really interesting. Yeah. Let's, let's hop into teaching your young children because Jordan and I, our kids aren't there yet, but most of our listeners would probably have kids in this demographic, or these might be things that uh, maybe they're foundational. I I don't like to use the word basics or whatever, let's call them essentials or things like that. Mm -hmm. But looking at those pillars again, the thing that jumped out to me was the investing section. Boy, investing as a five to eight year old, there's there's not a lot of mechanisms to do that in our line of work here, but uh, your, your subheading for that section is encouraging entrepreneurship beyond the lemonade stand. I've been seeing tons of lemonade stands in my neighborhood, but anyway, talk me through that section. You do or you don't? I do. Yeah. I know. I still see them in mine. These girls that live across the street from me, it wasn't, they were a little bit older or they were 11, but they were selling these beaded bracelets and they were donating half the proceeds to the hospital for sick children in Toronto and half was going back into their business, I think. And they had an Instagram page and they were on social media. So they might actually have taken like Square or PayPal or something. (laughs) But like, you're absolutely right. Evan, in that, in that pillar invest at that stage, there's not going to be as much to talk about as there is in the emerging adult chapter, which I'm sure you've seen. There's like an introduction to stocks and bonds and asset allocation and diversification, all that. Yeah. Like a five, six year old's not going to be able to understand that. But they they do get excited about doing a lemonade stand or selling beads or something like that. And then even at the pre at the preteen stage, you know, maybe you can talk to them about a GIC, a guaranteed investment certificate. And now with interest rates going up, people might actually start looking at a GIC again for their savings. So and again, that's an opportunity to teach about locking in your money and getting a little more. And uh, so there's always something. At, at every stage under the pillars, but some of them are more robust than others. Right. I was thinking here just off the top of my head about how to encourage kids to to be part of those conversations. So for many kids, mm-hmm. they might have an RESP set up for them, mm-hmm. which might be invested in things like stocks and bonds or mutual funds, ETFs, things like that. Even just showing your kids yeah, how their money, their future money is being invested for them, even though they don't have to make the decision. They don't really have to understand how it works. But is that a valuable conversation to have? You know? Yeah. I mean, I would think for a teenager. For sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like maybe at around the, the teenage stage. And again, depending on how curious and interested they are. Another 
showing them their RESP, the portfolio and explaining like what that even is, a registered education savings plan. So that when they go to university or college, you can withdraw funds out of that plan and help pay for all those costs, which we know now it averages, I think, seven or eight thousand just in tuition for an undergraduate, a regular arts undergraduate, not even like a specialty like engineering or and that doesn't include room and board. So student debt, you know, people are coming out with a lot of student debts to the extent that you can save towards that in advance is great. And explaining that is wonderful. Another idea. So when my daughter, I also have a son, I don't know why I, I haven't talked about him yet, but I will. But when my daughter was born, my brother bought her one share of Walt Disney Corporation. Oh, cool. And she has always kept, we've always kept it. And Initially, it came with a bearer certificate, which we framed. I was going to ask. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't think they issue those anymore. I think you have to request them from investor relations or something. Yeah, probably. And the stock has split. I mean, now it's in her brokerage account, but it's, you know, it's split and she's always kept it. And even when she was little, before we did the drip, the dividend reinvestment, she was getting these little dividend checks for like a few cents. And we would, you know, deposit them at the bank and she was getting the annual reports. And because it was Disney, they were very cool. Like they had like cartoons and pictures. They would talk about, you know, what's in an annual report, like what went on that year. And they would talk about some of the movies in the theme parks. So that was an amazing way to to interest a kid in stock. And yeah, as I said, she still owns it. And I think it's probably done okay over the years it's not like apple but still <laughs> yeah. the house of mouse is paying you that's that's pretty cool yeah yeah, yeah. it's very cool <laughs> so that's another way to get like a kid interested maybe either with a mock portfolio or just even like a small amount fractional ownership of like a share of something that they're interested in just to get them engaged it's really interesting hearing you talk about this because when we think investing in our world you know we think of what plan are you holding it in? What are you investing in? But, you know, starting with those young kids, investing in yourself, the entrepreneurship idea, the lemonade stand or, or beyond that and what that looks like. And then as they get older, some of those other lessons, I, you know, you had simple versus compound interest in there, mm-hmm. the, you know, the drip, the dividend reinvestments, something like that. I just got to imagine that by the time your kid hits 18 and now they have the opportunity to maybe open that TFSA or, or whatever yeah. else. They are so much more well prepared to do that based on all these lessons that you know you've been able to teach them through the years. Yeah, exactly. And I think investing in yourself is a really important point, whether it's just ongoing professional development in your career or learning something that you don't know about. And I I promised I would share a story about my son. He's older than my daughter. So he studied philosophy and political science in university, not the most practical. And during the pandemic, he wasn't working. So I said to him, this is a great time for you to take an investing course. <laughs> Yay! So I said to him, I will take, if you take it, I'll take it. I couldn't take it at the same time as him because I was taking another course, but I took it two months later. And it was really good because it, it kind of, taught him like stuff that he needed to know, just very fundamental stuff about value investing. And then we could talk about it. We were on the same page. I knew exactly what he had learned, you know, and now we have like a way to have these conversations. And as you point out, it's so important to start investing when you're young because of the power of compounding. And that's a really important lesson to share is try to start investing early, early and often. One thing that you kind of cover off by by going through a, a course like that or 
teaching kids things really early. And then, you know, as they go on, when they start to have to make the decisions for themselves, one of the biggest hurdles that I've seen is that people Mm -hmm. don't know what they don't know. And -hmm. so they don't even know what questions to ask sometimes that, you know, things might come up that it's like, boy, I wouldn't have even thought to think that. But had you had a little bit of background in investing or understood what an RESP was, while it was invested for you, as opposed to for your own kids, you, you know, you might know what to ask along the way a little bit. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good example. Yeah. Isn't, I think that's probably the whole reason you have a podcast because I think now there's other ways to learn. I kind of think it's incumbent on us to have everyone, for everyone to have some personal finance knowledge, just like I sort of have to have a little bit of medical knowledge just to manage my, you know, personal health. I think everybody needs to have a little financial knowledge. Now, you know, that doesn't make, mean you have to be an expert, but like you said, at least having a feel, good feel for like what some of the issues are, what some of the products are, at least, you know, the right questions to ask the expert, like the CFP or your, you know, your portfolio manager, because I feel like it's gotten very sophisticated and complicated. And I'm sure you probably feel the same way. Like if a client is a little bit financially literate, maybe those conversations go a little easier and they're more well-informed, you can have a kind of different discussion, maybe better outcomes and decisions. I find that the more people understand about their own plan, the more likely they are to stick with it. Yeah. Because if it's blind trust in someone like myself, then when the next bear market comes or the next... Yeah, they freak out. And they, yeah, and rightfully so, right? Because you don't know what's going on, right? So the, the more you can understand even a little bit, the more likely it's, okay, I understand what this is. I know what I'm investing in and, and so on. But we're deviating a yes. little bit from from the kids no, a no, little no, bit but, here, but yeah. But, yeah, but how do you kind of get to that point where you feel like, yeah, I'm financially sure. literate, I'm well-informed. Well, I think it starts hopefully when you're younger and you just build and build on it. But I think self-study is a big part of that, listening to podcasts. I mean, a question I get all the time is, you know, I wish my kids, I wish I had learned this in school or what, you know, I can't believe they didn't teach this in school. So maybe people, you know, my age, your age, didn't get it in school. Now it is happening in Canada, you know, in the different provinces in school, but in different ways. I still feel like parents have a huge role to play. And then as you get older, you know, you really have to continue to learn about this. Absolutely. One really specific thing that I know a lot of parents listening and myself mm-hmm. and are interested in is the idea of allowance. Do you have any specific thoughts on allowance? I, I'm sure that was a, a big part of, of your thought yeah, process that, in writing this book. Yeah. Yeah. That question is always comes up. And I think the the issue around it is whether you pay your children for chores or, or you have them do their chores out of a sense of responsibility and then how much to pay and all that stuff. So the way I've always looked at it is, I mean, obviously this has to be in line with the family's values, in line with their means and other things, but an allowance really is a great money management tool because it gives your kid their, you know, they're earning it. And we'll talk about that in a sec, but like once they have it, then they have to choose, make those choices, those four other pillars of how much to save or spend or share or invest. So some some families want or parents want their kids to to earn their allowance so that they understand like what it takes to make money. Whereas others, they just want 
their kids to do their chores out of a sense of, out of a sense of family responsibility and pulling their weight. And they figure they can earn money by getting a job when they're old enough, even an odd job as like a teenager babysitting. And then as a real job when they get a bit older, I think you can do a bit of a hybrid where you pay a basic allowance. So they have some money of their own so that they can make those choices, make mistakes like we talked about. And then you can always pay them a little more if they have to do certain things that are kind of above and beyond than just the day to day chores. I'm sure you guys know there's lots of fintech apps now that help families manage their money and sorry, help parents manage their allowance and tie it to chores and keep an eye on like some oversight on spending. One of them is Wallow, which is an independent app. It's not owned by one of the big banks. Like they've gotten financing from the Desjardins group, but they're not like affiliated with any of the big banks. Mido is another one, but they're with RBC. So there's just a lot of apps out there because I think we're in this digital age, as I mentioned at the top, Parents don't always have cash around. So this is a way to give their kids an allowance. They have a debit card they can spend, but it's tied to chores and there's educational component too. That's pretty cool because, you know, I, yeah. I've got an Apple watch. And so I often pay for groceries with, with my watch, <laughs> like mm-hmm. still kind of makes my head explode just like that concept. <laughs> so like it, it's tough for me to, to align like how I interact with money and then say, okay, and here's your piggy bank with these coins that you're never actually going to see in real life because by the time you actually get to spend it, you're going to pay with your watch or blinking twice or whatever it's going to be by the time they get to be that old. I know. I think though with kids, your young kids, like, I don't know if your two-year-old has a piggy bank, Evan, but like a lot She does. Of, it's empty though. Yeah. yeah. Is it? <laughs> yeah. A lot of little kids still have one. And uh, I know we're not visual, but normally I would show like this multi-slotted piggy bank. I don't know if you've seen them, but they have five slots, four slots for save, spend, share, and invest. So that kind of makes those choices more tangible. But I agree. We're, we're more and more in a digital era. Although I don't know if you guys were impacted by that Rogers outage like a month ago. Not as much here, actually. Saskatchewan's yeah, a bit of an west island. Here. Yeah, west here, uh, Rogers isn't as. But as there, well. there were places that yeah. I think their debit machines or something like in Ontario, pizza. it was pretty pervasive, and lots of places were credit cards, no debit, cash only. So it kind of brought home. It was just a reminder that you still need some cash. Still need some cash in your wallet. You never know in case of emergency. And again, with little kids, you want it to be. Some like you want money to be tangible and concrete and something that they can really understand and get as opposed to like this totally abstract concept of tapping a watch or a phone or a cock piece of plastic. Like it's just hard for them to understand what that's all about. Like you said, even we don't, I don't even really like it's complicated. So, and our Canadian currency is like fun and it's got like, you know, loonies and toonies and cool Canadian symbols on them. So it's like another teachable moment, right? You can explain how to make change and you can talk about those symbols and little Canadian history lesson can be built in. That's an interesting thing that I honestly didn't think about because I like cooking a lot. And Jamie Oliver is a huge proponent of like healthy eating and teaching your kids mm-hmm. about cooking as, as a means to oh, like good. eat yeah. healthy. And one of the th- ways he recommends uh, getting kids to eat vegetables is using a crinkle cutter. So it's like, oh, Hey, if your cucumber looks kind of fun, you might try it. 
you know, so That's, maybe yeah. if your money is purple, that is cool, you know? And yeah. yeah. And like, as I said, you know, we've got like the beaver and the loon and the, you know, the schooner, or like the sailboat, like, it's just, it's kind of cool when you look. And then like, obviously the prime ministers, the queen, like all that stuff, like it can be fun if you, you know, if you make it so. Maybe just to kind of tie it all together, one of the things you talk about in the book is using goals with your yes. kids and, and specifically with money. How have you seen goals? Goals can be a bit of a hard thing. Yeah, Evan and I talk about that sometimes. Like, How, how have you seen goals used most effectively with kids and maybe at some of the different stages that you've been talking about? Mm-hmm. Goals that are tied to your values, your personal values, the things in your life that are most important to you are going to be more meaningful and compelling. So I feel like for for sure for adults, having a good understanding of your values is really important. And I actually have on my website, uh, robintobe.com, a free values validator. So people can do a little assessment and figure out what their top five values are because your values can act as an invisible framework to help guide and prioritize financial decisions and set goals. And even your kids, like older kids, like probably maybe from preteen and up can do this because they, they also will have their own strongly held values based on family values, but also their own personalities and how they're hardwired. So it's good to get them to do the validator too, and then to tie their own goals to those values Another really effective way is for parents to get their kids to save for goals, to offer to match it. And a lot of parents I speak to do that. So if their child's saving up for something big, maybe a new computer or a cell phone or just something they really want, whether it's a video game or clothes or something, parents, if they can afford to, again, and if, if they are in line, if, you know, if they agree with the goal, they can offer to mat, help match it. So if the kid can save up half or a third, they'll come up with the, the, the remainder. So it's just kind of like analogous to a group savings plan at work, or even like the RESP that you mentioned, you, you know, you put money in and then there's a government grant that matches that. So no one likes to leave money on the table. So it's I was just, thinking, nice I was just thinking that it, the government does that or corporations with charity, yeah. you know, you chip in a dollar, we'll chip in two or whatever right. the ratio is. doesn't or, really matter. That's, right. that, that's right. really interesting. Yeah. For fundraising too, you see that a lot with corporations, but for sure, like with group RSP plans and stuff like that. So parents will also sometimes do that to help their kids save. I've also seen that awesome. as a, uh, a withdrawal strategy for our ESPs. So sometimes, you know, kids will have, or parents will have X amount of money in an RESP, but they don't necessarily want to pay for all the kids school, but they were quite diligent and they have plenty to do it. And so they say, okay, they don't need to tell the kids how much is saved in there necessarily. I'm not a big fan of keeping secrets, but whatever, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, so like say school is six thousand dollars and say okay if you can come up with three thousand just to teach the work ethic or the earning side of things we'll pay the other three or whatever the case may be or something like that i've seen that before yeah or the kids have to pay like let's say they're going uh, out of town and they have room and board so maybe you pay the tuition out of the resp and some of the room and board and then they kind of have to pay for manage some of their own personal lifestyle as well with their own money that they've worked for in the summer or saved up or have part-time job during school. Awesome. Yeah. As we wrap up here, Robin, I, I always try to make things as practical as possible and you've shared some good practical tips with us, but do you have any 
of the highest value, highest impact strategies that you would recommend for people teaching their kids about money that you'd be willing to share with our, our listeners? Yes. I think I'd probably mention them all, but it's a great idea to recap them. So the first one is to use your values to help guide and prioritize financial decisions and set goals. And again, there's a values validator on robintobe.com. Look for teachable moments to build a money lesson into your day-to-day lives. And I'm sure everyone who's listening, they could probably come up with at least two this week, two opportunities to build a money lesson. And then the third is to try to get your own financial house in order so that you can lead by example and be a good financial role model to your kids. And the and again, there's I have a free role model self-assessment at thewisestinvestment.com. And in the book, The 11 Healthy Habits, too, just giving you some ways to do that, to get your own house in order. So those are really my my three best strategies for teaching kids. And then again, just try to share information that's age appropriate under those five pillars of earn, save, spend, share, and invest. Wonderful. So wrapping up with the the book here again, again, it's called The Wisest Investment is the, the new name for it. Yeah. And so who should read the book and where can they find it? So it is written for parents, but certainly I've had so many parents tell me that they've given it to their older kids to read, like again, probably preteen, teen and up. Grandparents love it. Uh, I've had grandparents buy it for their chips for their adult children and to use with their grandkids, aunts and uncles and teachers. Teachers are another group because financial literacy is now being taught in schools across the country. So I've had teachers use the use the book as lessons. Cause as you've seen, there's like some very practical, like family discussion or to do, and you can kind of use those as classroom discussion ideas. And the easiest place to find the book is if you go to the wisestinvestment.com, there's a link right on there to Amazon. It's available as an ebook and a paperback. Awesome. Now, Robin, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You're writing about money for kids. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about writing a kid's book? I haven't. I don't think I will, but I know of two really good ones because this little community of teaching kids is small. So a a fellow named Will Rainey wrote a book called Grandpa's Fortune Fables. Okay. And then there's another one by Rob Phelan called M is for Money. And those are for kids to read. So as you can tell, probably by the name and they're for like younger kids to read and they're both really good. No, I don't. I don't foresee writing a book for kids. <laughs> well, I appreciate the uh, the recommendation there because I'm, I'm right in the, the market for for Oops. for buying kids books here. So that's that's perfect. Thanks for those recommendations. But you're welcome. Robin, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. This was really cool to have this conversation with you. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Maybe when your kids are a little older, I'll come back and we'll talk about, you know, what you've actually experienced. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Canadian Money Roadmap Podcast. Any rates of return or investments discussed are historical or hypothetical and are intended to be used for educational purposes only. You should always consult with your financial, legal, and tax advisors before making changes to your financial plan. Evan Neufeld is a certified financial planner and registered investment fund advisor. Mutual funds and ETFs are provided by Sterling Mutuals, Inc.